Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we plead his obedience and suffering. Father, we make mention of his righteousness only because we do not have any righteousness of our own to bring to you. We only have what you have graciously given us through your son, Jesus Christ. And so Father, as we just sang, would the cross of your son, Jesus, be our only boast. Father, don't let us boast in our wisdom. Don't let us boast in our strength. Don't let us boast in any accomplishment, only to boast in Jesus Christ, the finished work that he's completed for us. And we rejoice in this work. We rejoice that at the cross, the penalty for our sin was paid. The debt was satisfied. We thank you that when he walked out of the grave, he made it possible for us to call on his name in faith and freely receive this gift of salvation. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us Jesus. And as we come to your word now, Lord, we submit ourselves to its full authority over our lives. We recognize that we have no authority of our own, only what's been spoken through your word. So we submit to it now. We speak to us today, Father, a word that will edify your church and glorify your name. Father, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. We submit to it now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. As you find your seats, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter five is where we're gonna be spending our time together this morning. Um, If you're our guest or with us today here for the first time, this summer we began studying the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapters five through seven. We expect to be doing this for the rest of the year um, as a congregation. So today we'll be picking up just where we left off last week, uh, beginning in verse 17, going down through verse 20. As a great Southern poet once said, uh, we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So um, we're gonna dive right into things this morning as we uh, try to cover a lot of ground. In just a few weeks, we'll hold our next cross point, which is our covenant membership class for anybody who desires to become a member of our church family. And during cross point, we spend the first part of the class talking about things like what we believe as a church. We review key doctrines, theological positions, and this includes a statement about what we believe as a church about the Bible. And, and the statement that we embrace as a church about the Bible that we read during this class reads just like this. It says, the Holy Bible was written by men, d- divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It is God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world, the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. And a primary reason why we cover that doctrine during this class and the reason why it's at the top of a doctrinal statement is because it's from what we believe about the Bible that we form our conviction and belief about what we believe about everything else. And so we start with the Bible because if we get it wrong on the Bible, then we're very, very likely to get it wrong everywhere else. 
So we try to make it plainly clear from the very beginning of the class, from anyone who may be a prospective member of our church family, this is what we believe about the word of God. And this is where we stand in regards to the word of God. And so much of what we believe about the Bible isn't just formed of our own opinion. We believe what we believe about the Bible because we believe what Jesus believed about the Bible. And a statement like that begs then the question, what did Jesus believe about the Bible? And it's an important question for us because even among those who are followers of Jesus, professing followers of Jesus, there's been a departure in recent years from what we would call orthodoxy and adherence to biblical standards and guidelines. And so much of this is going against not just what the church believes about the Bible, but what Jesus Christ himself has believed about the word. So what did Jesus believe about the Bible and teach about the Bible? That's the question that we're gonna answer together today. And it's a critical question for our time. This Barner research from last year, 2021, revealed that 51% of Americans claim to have a biblical worldview. But as they carried out the questions uh, that they were interviewing people with, what they saw on the other side of this is that while 51% claim to have a biblical worldview, only 6% could have what be considered a biblical worldview and actually hold to a biblical worldview. And it's evidenced by the fact that 45% of people gave answers to questions that totally contradict what we find in scripture. So again, 51% claimed a biblical worldview, but among those 51%, 72% indicated a belief that people are basically good. 64% indicated that all faiths have equal religious value. 57% indicated that they believe in karma. And nearly half indicated a belief in reincarnation after they die. So only 6% of adults provided answers that were consistent with what's taught in scripture. And so to call this a crisis would be a radical understatement. And it then heightens the urgency of the question, what did Jesus believe about the Bible? And it's a question we have to answer because whatever Jesus believed about the Bible is what you and I have to believe about the Bible. Otherwise, we can't say that we're true followers of Jesus Christ. What we're gonna to see today in Matthew 5, through 5, 17 to 20 is the most comprehensive teaching Jesus gives in all of the gospels about what he personally believed about the scriptures. We'll see from these verses that all scripture is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He calls us to walk in his perfect righteousness as we uphold and hold fast to his word. And throughout this message, Jesus reveals what he believes about the scriptures. He uh, reveals the level of commitment to the word that he expects from those who follow him and the kind of righteousness that's required of us to enter in to the kingdom of heaven. So Matthew chapter five, this is the passage Michael read for us just a few moments ago, but let's read again together, verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what did Jesus teach about the scripture? Well, we see first and foremost that Jesus clarified his own position on the scriptures. Jesus shows us right away where he stands in relation to God's word. Now, apparently there were some listening to Jesus who were under the impression that he had come to do away with the Old Testament law. The problem with the scribes and Pharisees during the time of Jesus is not so much that they uh, observed and obeyed the law, it's that they would interpret the law and apply the law, all the nuances of it, and then they treated their own interpretations and applications of the law as being equally authoritative as the word of God itself. 
So what Jesus came to do was to distinguish between what the actual word of God was from the interpretations and applications of the word that were held up as authoritative by the Pharisees and to reveal to the religious leaders where they had gotten the word wrong. So here's Jesus, he's this charismatic new leader. He's already garnered this massive following, this huge crowd of people has gathered to, to hear him preach the Sermon on the Mount that day. And chief among their questions about Jesus would have been, what does this man believe about the scriptures? And Jesus gives his answer in no uncertain terms. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we see from Jesus that he upholds the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. Understand when Jesus references the law and the prophets, this is just another way of referencing the entire Old Testament. So this is Jesus affirming the Old Testament. And this phrase, do not think in verse 17, it's, it's actually much more intense than it translates in most of our English translations. Those who were gathered together that day, when they heard those words, do not think, it would have come across in a way that you and I might say to someone, do not even think for one second. And so straight away, Jesus is, is already sharing with the people, don't even allow the thought to enter your mind that I have in any way, shape or form come to do away with the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish it. I've not come to tear it down. I've not come to destroy it. I've not come to invalidate what it says. He upholds the law and Jesus shows us by upholding the law, he also fulfills the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law. He's upholding it. I have come to fulfill it. This word to fulfill that he uses here, it literally means to fill up. He came to give it its true and complete meaning. Love this from J.C. Ryle. He said, the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. I had a Sunday school teacher growing up who used to tell us when we were middle school and high school that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law to do away with it. He came to fulfill it. He came to bring it to completion, to give it its full intended meaning. And this is a message that Jesus repeatedly emphasizes all throughout his ministry. We see in John chapter five, verse 39, the religious leaders challenge Christ's authority and he tells them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures that bear witness about me. Following his resurrection in Luke 24, Jesus is walking the Emmaus road. He comes alongside two disciples who were confused about why Christ had to die. And, and, and because Jesus had died on the cross, they didn't immediately recognize that it was him walking right next to them. It says in Luke 24, 25, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses or the law and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So church, there's no question for us today, any notion that Jesus somehow contradicted the Old Testament or did away with the Old Testament is a notion that has to be dismissed outright. And this is challenging for us. Because, you know, if, if we're being honest, like when we're reading through the Old Testament, there's a lot of things there that challenge us. There's a lot of things in the Old Testament often make us uncomfortable. I'd be willing to bet there's at least some of us that have, have found ourselves reading the Old Testament times, number one, wondering what on earth does this have to do with me? Or, or even beyond that, sometimes even ashamed of things that we find there. Things that we see that God says or that God does or that his people say and do. And we think to ourselves, man, it would be a lot easier for people to believe in God if these things simply weren't there. But, but church, what we have to remember 
In those moments when we are challenged by the Old Testament, when we're made to be uncomfortable by the Old Testament, even if we find ourselves embarrassed of the Old Testament, we need to remember that our Savior Jesus was not ashamed of one word that's in this book. He did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. He came to fulfill them and to do it to its greatest possible extent. Verse 18, Jesus goes on to say, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not in iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus clarified his position on the scriptures. And second, we see that Jesus solidified the permanence of the scriptures. He solidified the permanence of the scriptures. At the beginning of verse 18, Jesus makes a statement that might not mean much to us, but it would have carried significant weight for those who were listening to him on the mountainside that day. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, some of your Bibles might translate this, verily I say to you, or even amen I say to you. And amen is a statement of affirmation or agreement. So you ask the question, why do pastors call for an amen at times? I'll just give you the completely uh, like transparent reason for this. It's because we're all pathetically insecure and we're desperately hoping somebody agrees with us. <laughs> amen? amen? Thank you, yeah. That's why we do it. We tack it on the end of something. It's a statement of agreement. We're, we're really saying it like, hey, does, does, does someone agree with this, please? But Jesus says it at the front of the statement. And so by, by saying this at the front of the statement, the way Jesus is communicating, saying what I'm about to say next, this is something that you can take to the bank. Truly, I say to you, verily, I say to you, amen, I say to you. And that phrase, I say to you, also had massive implications. During the time of Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees, whenever they would teach and preach, they mostly just quoted other scribes and Pharisees. So their teaching went, this rabbi has said this, that rabbi has said that. Their message was largely, they say to you, but here comes Jesus preaching, I say to you. This was a statement of authority. Jesus is quoting no other authority except for his own. And we'll see this over the next several weeks, how Jesus will lead out a section of teaching by saying, uh, you have heard it was said, and then he follows it up with, but I say to you. Just give an example here. Um, some of you know, I'm, I'm doing doctoral work through Southeastern Seminary right now. Pray for me, please, goodness, surviving, barely. But um, as I get into the fall, I'm starting to shift into my project and writing phases. And um, this coming fall, I promise you, it's even more boring than it sounds. Um, this coming fall, I have to pull together my annotated bibliography. Okay, who just, who just got PTSD from like college or grad school when you heard those words? And so what am I doing right now? I'm, I'm curating dozens of resources, you know, scholars and authors and pastors and historians, and, and my focus is in preaching. And so I'm pulling together all these various perspectives um, that I have to be able to cite throughout the course of my project. And the reason I have to do that is because I'm not considered a subject matter expert in my area. I've got to show that I've really looked at the diamond from every angle, that I've considered multiple perspectives, that I've thought about every side of the arguments that I'm making and of the, of the project that I'm putting forward. And I have to do that because I don't have the type of authority to, to just go by my own opinion. So let's imagine for just a second, I get to the end of this coming fall semester. And, and instead of turning in a bibliography that has dozens of sources cited, I turn in a bibliography that has one single word that just says me. Hand that to my professor. Well, who were your sources? I was. Who gave you permission to do that? I did. Whose authority do you do this by? Mine. Guys, if I do that, that's not gonna go well for me, right? Because I don't have authority. I don't have any, I, I'm not in a position that I can just kind of give my own opinion and wing it and think that everybody's gonna be okay with it. But this wasn't the case. 
with Jesus. Jesus quoted no other authority but his own. When the Lord Jesus Christ taught and preached, he needed no sources. Jesus never formatted a single footnote. He required no other authority than his own. Jesus Christ was his own bibliography. I say to you, he not only affirmed his own authority, he affirmed the authority of scripture. He saw these two as being one and the same. So it's not the authority of Jesus or the authority of his word. To uphold the authority of Jesus is to uphold the authority of his word. And to uphold the authority of his word is to uphold the authority of Jesus. And so we see through his teaching that Jesus affirms the Old Testament. We see, we've already seen this, that, that he came not to abolish, but to fulfill down to its very last nuance. He says down to the iota, that's the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet, down to the dot, that's basically the equivalent of a serif in font types, the type of mark you would make to distinguish a capital C from a capital G. Actually, if you look at the front of your worship guide this morning, what you'll see is the scripture reference on the front of your worship guide, that is a serif font, and then all of the surrounding content is sans serif. So I mean, you, you see just the subtle distinction in the letters. It's those, those little marks that we make just to distinguish one letter from another. And what Jesus says about all this, he says, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. But Jesus not only affirms the authority of the Old Testament, we see through his teaching and ministry that he affirms the authority of the New Testament. And this is important for us to see because many modern Bible critics are often guilty of pitting the words of Jesus against the words of Paul or other New Testament writers. It typically goes like this. They'll read something that Paul or another New Testament writer has written about idolatry or church governance or gender or sexuality, and their pushback will be, well, Jesus didn't say that, Paul said that. As if Jesus and Paul are somehow in competition with one another, and, and one is right and the other's wrong. But we know that they're not in competition because Jesus promised his disciples in John 14 that he would bring to their remembrance everything that he taught that he would guide them in teaching by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is John 14, 25. Jesus tells his disciples, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So when, when Peter's writing, when James is writing, when John is writing, when Paul is writing, they are being guided by the Holy Spirit, saying things, writing things that were said and taught by Jesus at some point in time. And that's why Paul can say this in 2 Timothy 3. He says, all scripture, everybody say all scripture. All of it is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So understand, to argue that Jesus is somehow against the law and the prophets, or to argue that Jesus is somehow in disagreement with Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers is to pit God against himself in church. That's a very dangerous game. He did not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. And he believed in the perfect unity and the total authority of all scripture because all scripture ultimately points to him. Verse 19, important word here. Jesus says, therefore, this is a really important therefore. This is a summary statement in light of things that he's already said. So even just going back a couple of verses, since he came not to abolish, but to fulfill, since not one letter of the word will be lost. Therefore, Jesus shows us this in verse 19. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom 
of heaven. So Jesus clarified his own position on the scriptures. Jesus solidified the permanence of the scriptures. We see third, that Jesus demanded the preservation of the scriptures. Now, I'm gonna go ahead and just give you the advance warning to let you know, we're gonna camp out on this third point for most of the rest of our time. Um, there's a lot that's going on here in verse 19 that, that tends to create a good bit of confusion. And there's a few questions I think that you and I need to be able to answer uh, in order to get the full sense of what it is Jesus was getting across in this passage. So three key questions from this verse. What does Jesus mean when he refers to the least of the commandments? Second, if we cannot relax his commandments, then why are there parts of the Old Testament law that Christians no longer observe? And third question, what does Jesus mean by those who are least and greatest in the kingdom of heaven? These are three questions I think we all need to be able to answer. Let's walk through them here one at a time for the next several minutes. Last week, if you were here with us, Dave Eatman did a terrific job from uh, verses 13 through 16, showing us what it means to be salt and light. And Dave showed us that salt could be used as a uh, preserving agent for food. And so Jesus has already really set up where he's going here in verse 19. We are called as followers of Christ to a, a work of preserving. And what we're preserving in uh, verses 17 through 20, according to Jesus, is the word exactly as it's been entrusted to us. And so we need to see this immediately. Our work is a preserving work. We're not called to edit the word to our own liking. We're not called to twist the word to fit our own interpretations. We're not called to adjust the word, to accommodate to modern sensibilities and ideologies. Church, we are called to preserve the word exactly as it has been entrusted to us by God. This is the work that he's called us to. So first question then, what does Jesus mean when he warns those who relax the least of scripture's commands? Is Jesus saying that some commands are more important than the others? Now, I think Jesus gives us a key to understanding what this means later on in Matthew chapter 23, where he pronounces statements of judgment, woes to the scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 23, 23. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, which are spices, and neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus says, these you ought to have done. They're, they're tithing. He said, you ought to have done that, but without neglecting the others, faithfulness and justice and mercy. The Pharisees were so meticulous in their observance of the law that they didn't just tithe from their money. They tithed out of their spices. And Jesus actually commends them for this. He says, you, you should have done these things. These you ought to have done. So Jesus doesn't condemn the Pharisees for what they have done. Jesus condemns the Pharisees for what they haven't done, which is pay attention to the weightier matters of the law, which are faithfulness and justice and mercy. So Jesus isn't saying that, that, that some matter more than the others. What Jesus, or excuse me, Jesus isn't saying that, that, that some laws are, are unimportant. It's all important. He's saying that some just carry more significance than others. There's some that are weightier matters than the smaller things. So we observe the practices like praying and giving and fasting, but we do these things without neglecting the weightier matters like faithfulness, justice, and mercy. I'm just give you an example. You know, let, let's say uh, you're doing something today at home, working around the house, and you break your finger. And you're like, man, I, I need to go to the ER. I need an x-ray. I need to get this checked out. And maybe uh, it's a miracle and it's not a busy day at the ER. And you, you come in front desk and nurse checks you in and says, okay, just go have a seat. We'll be with you in just a few minutes. But just as they're getting ready to call your name, an ambulance comes screaming into the parking lot. And then they wheel in someone who's received multiple gunshot wounds. 
Well, what's gonna happen to you and your broken finger there for just a, a little bit? You're gonna get put to the side, right? Does that mean your broken finger's not important? Of course not. It just means that in that moment, there's something more important that's going on. There's a weightier situation that's taking place that could mean life or death. And so this is what Jesus is saying about the law. It's, it's not that, that some commands are unimportant. It's just that there's some commands that carry more weight than others. So this then raises the, the second question for us. If Jesus upholds the permanence of scripture and says that we can't relax the least of the commands, then why are there Old Testament practices that New Testament Christians no longer observe? And this is an important question because oftentimes what happens as Christians is we'll receive the criticism that we just like to pick and choose what we want from the Bible. It typically goes like this. You say you get into a debate with someone about what the Bible says regarding sexuality and that person will push back and say, well, the Bible also says you shouldn't mix fabrics. And the Bible also says you shouldn't eat shellfish. And the Bible also says you can't do all these things on Sunday. And they'll just, they'll just point back to all of these obscure Old Testament laws. And so we gotta ask the question, like, is that a valid criticism? Are we guilty then of just picking and choosing and cherry picking from the Bible, whatever is convenient to us in that moment? And this is why it's so important to understand what Jesus meant when he said that he came to fulfill the law. Because from the teachings of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament, we see very clearly that there were certain Old Testament practices and components of the law that found their total fulfillment in Jesus Christ from which you and I are free today. So you know, for example, when God gave the Old Testament law, he designated certain foods as clean and unclean. And this had a couple of purposes. One was to distinguish the nation of Israel, his people from the surrounding nations. And it was also to demonstrate that he is a holy God, that he has standards that we're called to live by. And what this does is it reveals the sinfulness of man and our inability to meet all of his standards perfectly. And the, the purpose of these laws was to heighten their awareness of God's holiness and their sinfulness and how sin separates man from God. But even as, as breaking the law makes us unclean, what they would have to do then is go through uh, rituals of purification or making sacrifices to be reconciled, to be brought back uh, into right relationship. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, the gospel tells us that we can be restored to fellowship with God. And this restoration doesn't come through external purity, it comes through internal purity. This is what Jesus has to say about the food laws, for example, in Mark chapter seven. He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man. This is where Jesus makes a shift. True righteousness is not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. He says, from the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. These ceremonial laws were only intended to demonstrate to God's people that sin makes us impure and we need to be made pure. And Jesus shows here that no amount of external cleansing will be enough to clean the impurity of our hearts. That's why for those who broke these laws, God also institutes a system for sacrifice to atone for their sins. And this too was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, the writer of Hebrews says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Then the apostle Paul carries this out in Romans 8, where he writes, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, this is such good news for you and I today. Because what Paul has written, what the writer of Hebrews has written, what Jesus is getting at here is that Jesus has come to do for us, church, what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus came to this earth to accomplish what the, what the law by itself was totally incapable of doing. You and I, uh, in theory, we could white knuckle this thing. We could live by the checklist. We could literally dot every I and cross every T. But here's the reality for you and I today, even as modern followers of Jesus Christ. You can check the box every single day on your Bible reading plan. You can never miss a Sunday. You can give 10% of all your finances and everything you own. You can even go as far as to evangelize and share the gospel with those who are far from Jesus Christ. And all of that is still only good enough to send you to hell if you've not made, been made righteous through faith in him. Jesus isn't just showing them a way that's harder. He's showing them a way that apart from him is impossible. He did not come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. So while there are various religious practices of the law that we're no longer bound to, we are very much still obligated to all of the righteous principles that the law contained. R.C. Sproul, a great theologian and pastor, passed away just a few years ago, he used to tell a story related to this passage that was simultaneously sad and funny at the same time. And he tells this story of how he was once invited to speak at this conference in New York. And those who had organized the conference invited him to come pray with them after the conference end. They said, will you come pray with us? He's like, of course I will. And so the conference ends and they gather together in this room. And, and, and so as they gather together as a group, um, somebody shuts the door, they turn off the lights. And then he said, everybody in the room got down on the ground and started praying to their dead relatives. And if you ever listen to R.C. Sproul teach, like the, the brother loved a good cigar. So like he had this deep, like raspy voice. He's very much a straight shooter. And, and in the middle of all this, he just interrupts the whole thing. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. And everybody's like, what's the matter? He goes, do you people not realize that what you're doing would have gotten you the death penalty under the Old Testament law? And they go, well, we're no longer under the law. We're now free. We're in the spirit. We're under grace. And this is the question he asks. He goes, what has taken place in the history of redemption that you think something that was so utterly repugnant to God under the Old Testament law is suddenly acceptable to him today? And then this is the same path that so many modern followers of Jesus are following. Same, and that has nothing to do with me anymore. They'll cite the gospel as their freedom to do what the word of God has called and required us to do. And we can't do this. But we cannot be guilty of, of diminishing what it is the law of God requires of us. You know, when we tend to think about the Pharisees, I think generally speaking, we tend to think of the Pharisees as the guys who were constantly adding to the law. And in a sense, they were. 
because they, they took the 600 plus commands from the Old Testament and, and they made interpretations and applications and then treated all those applications as equally authoritative as the word of God itself. I mean, just burdened the people with obligations that they themselves weren't even capable of holding up. So there is a sense in which they were making it more difficult for people to walk in obedience. But if you look at verse 19, Jesus doesn't accuse them just of making it more difficult. He actually accuses them of relaxing the law. You say, well, how, how are the Pharisees guilty of relaxing it. John Stott offers a really good reflection on this that I think brings clarity to what Jesus is saying. He says, what the scribes and Pharisees were doing in order to make obedience easier was to restrict the commandments and extend the permissions of the law. They made the law's demands less demanding and they made the law's permissions more permissive. What Jesus did was reverse both tendencies. He insisted instead that full implications of God's commandments must be accepted without imposing artificial limits, whereas the limits which God had set to his permissions must also be accepted and not arbitrarily increased. So, so follow it with me here for a second. What Jesus was accusing the Pharisees of doing by relaxing it was relaxing the demands of the law and increasing its permissions. The way they had made the law easier is that they had made it completely an external enterprise. Obedience for the Pharisees had nothing to do with your heart. It was about looking the part on the outside. And in that regard, Jesus said they had actually relaxed the intention of the law. So two warnings that we get then from the, Jesus as he against relaxing scripture, we see from Christ that he warns against external pietism. External pietism is when we decrease scripture's demands. We'll see in just a couple of weeks down uh, further in chapter five, that this is what the Pharisees had done with adultery. In their minds, as long as they were not physically committing the act of adultery, they were living righteously according to the word of God. That's why Jesus tells them, no, you have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even looked at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your hearts. Jesus showed them adultery is not just about your external behavior. It's about the internal condition of your heart. And they had completely relaxed this standard. It's not just a warning against external pietism. This is then also a warning against theological liberalism. You ask, what's the difference between the two? External pietism does what Stott says. It decreases scripture's demands. Theological liberalism goes on the opposite side. What it does is it increases scripture's permissions. That's what we'll see in a couple of weeks when we see what Jesus had to say about divorce. The Pharisees had gone beyond the boundaries. They had become more permissive than what God's word allowed when it came to divorce. And I think many of us are gonna be surprised to learn over the next few weeks together that Jesus had even more conservative views on sex and gender and sexuality and marriage than even the Pharisees did. He accuses them of relaxing the demands because they had made it about external obedience and he accuses them of, of also at the same time increasing scripture's permissions going beyond the boundaries of God's word. We have to see this. We have to see this today. Any notion that, that Jesus has somehow moved the goalpost, any notion that Jesus has somehow widen the boundaries. It's not just misguided, it's completely unwarranted. We have absolutely no reason to believe that Jesus believed anything other than the morality that's put forth in the Old Testament because he said that all scripture ultimately points to him and is fulfilled in him. So we have to be on guard against this and here's why. Because you and I are living right now in a cultural moment where we have a lot of people professing Christians, some of them with extremely large platforms, very popular, 
selling lots of books, tons of followers on Instagram, and, and they're, man, they're pastoring people through TikTok. And, and this, is, this is where we're at right now, is, is they, in the name of grace, in the name of love, in the name of mercy, they have decreased the demands of Scripture, and they have increased its permissions. We have a whole host of professing Christians who are totally and completely compromised, I mean, completely off the deep end, when it comes to what God's word has to say about gender and sex and sexuality and marriage, but the way they posture themselves is that in the name of standing up for sinners, they are Jesus standing in the gap, blocking out from people like us, the Pharisees who simply point to the standards of God's word. But church, understand, if you are among those who are decreasing the demands of scripture and increasing its permissions, you are not Jesus standing in the gap for sinners to protect them from Pharisees. According to Jesus, you have become the Pharisee standing in the way of sinners, preventing them from finding true righteousness in him. It's so deceptive the work that Satan does because the voices that do this, they look and sound like they are the most loving, the most caring, the most welcoming, the most accepting. And that's why we have to remember that even Satan shows up disguised as an angel of light. The wolf doesn't show up dressed like a wolf. He shows up dressed like a sheep. And we gotta recognize they're playing Halloween. Behind that mask is someone who wants to devour you. And it's gonna lead to the destruction of your soul. Jesus makes it so clear in his ministry. John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and not just white knuckling it and checking the box, but it's an obedience that flows from the heart. He promises in that same passage, he'll send the Holy Spirit, the helper who will come to guide us into truth. Matthew 28, it's in the Great Commission. As we make disciples and baptize them, what are we to be doing? Teaching them to observe how much of what Jesus has commanded? All of it. We cannot find ourselves in a position where we are decreasing scripture's demands or increasing scripture's permission. H.B. Charles, the pastor, has said it like this, I think so well. God is the author of scripture, and he has not given you and I editorial freedom over its message. We're entrusted with the preservation of his word. So very quickly here, last question from verse 19. What then does it mean to be called least or greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says those who relax even the least of the commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, just for the sake of time, I'm, I'm gonna jump just, just right to the chase here. There's a little bit of debate surrounding this passage that tends to be divided in a couple of different camps. There's those who think that Jesus was laying out some sort of heavenly hierarchy or ranking system of literal least to greatest. Um, and there's also those, uh, particularly among the early church fathers who would say, no, this is just a way of referencing those who are in the kingdom and those who aren't actually in the kingdom. And so again, just for the sake of time, let me get right to the point. I, I don't personally believe Jesus is laying out any sort of ranking or hierarchy system. And my reason for that is because of what we find in the very next verse. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom. And it's the scribes and Pharisees in verse 19 that he's accused of relaxing the command. So again, I, I don't think Jesus is really talking about a ranking system. I think this is language to refer to those who are in the kingdom and those who aren't. But, but just for the sake of charity, let, let's, let's just pretend for a second and say that there is some sort of hierarchy in heaven. But let's just say there is some sort of ranking system from least to greatest. Now, if that's true, if there's a way that, that, that you and I can receive greater honor than the great honor that we will already receive, if that's true, then I don't know about you, but I don't wanna aim for the bare minimum. Like, I don't wanna be content with just surviving the cut and going, well, I got it mostly right. 
It's better to be least in the kingdom than not to be in the kingdom at all. Like, I don't wanna settle for the bare minimum here. What we know is that when we are forever with Christ, Psalm 1611, in, in his presence is the fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so, man, if there is a way to know life beyond the fullness of life, joy beyond the fullness of joy, pleasure beyond the fullness of pleasure because we're with Christ, if that's available to us, I want all of it. And I think you should too. And the way Jesus shows that we would receive this is by doing what? It's by walking in his perfect righteousness and refusing to relax even the least of the commands of his word. Jesus upheld the scriptures. He, he, he showed that the scriptures would remain until all of this had been fulfilled. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. While there are various practices, religious practices that we're no longer obligated to observe, all of the righteous principles of the law very much remain. Make no mistake, church, this is a righteousness we can't earn on our own. That's how Jesus closes this passage out in verse 20. He tells us gathered, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus clarified his own position on the scriptures. He solidified that the permits of the scriptures we see here that Jesus revealed the purpose of the scriptures. This is what he's come to do. Now, put yourself in the shoes of those who were listening to Jesus that day. For the crowd that was gathered, the scribes and the Pharisees represent, I mean, these were like the poster children of what it meant to be obedient to the word of God. In their mind, if there was anybody who was capable of, of perfectly walking according to all that the scripture said. It was the scribes and the Pharisees. And here is Jesus telling that crowd gathered that day, your righteousness has to be greater than theirs. What? How could our righteousness be greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees? In their minds, what they were thinking was, that's impossible. And impossible was exactly the point. Jesus wanted them to see not, not just that you need a, a, a quantitatively better righteousness, you need a qualitatively different kind of righteousness. What they have isn't enough. Their external obedience and conformity to the letter of the law, none of it is enough. You need an altogether different type of righteousness. And this is what the scripture does for us. Jesus shows us here that the scriptures reveal our sin. This is what they do is we evaluate our lives in light of God's standard of perfection and righteousness and the commands that he calls us to walk in obedience to. All that does is reveal our inadequacy. When we stand in the mirror of God's word, we cannot help but come to the conclusion that I have not measured up to this. I have fallen short of the measuring rod of God's word. I don't measure up to what it requires of me. I'm not tall enough to get on this ride. That's immediately made clear to every one of us. But the scriptures don't just reveal our sin. Jesus came to show us that the scriptures reveal the Savior. They don't just show us where we fall short. They show us the one who didn't. Jesus Christ came to this earth to do what you and I could never do for ourselves and what the law certainly couldn't accomplish for us. He lived the perfect life you and I could never live. He died the death on the cross that you and I deserve. He rose again from the grave so that we could call on his name freely in faith and repent of our sins and be saved. 
He's done to do, come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. This had been promised centuries before by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. These people who had waited for centuries, who is our Messiah? When is he coming? When Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, that was his announcement. Your savior's here. The one to do what you, who came to do what you could never do has finally come. Friend, understand, Jesus did not just come to modify your behavior. He came to transform your heart. You and I can white knuckle this thing if we want. We, we, can, we can follow the checklist. We, we can do our best to follow all of the rules, but Jesus came to do what absolutely no one could do for you and what the law could never do. He lived that perfectly righteous life. And it's only through faith in him that we find the perfect righteousness that he demands. That's the purpose of his word. It's to reveal our need for the savior and then to show us who that savior is. Now, uh, very quickly, as we close up here this morning, I wanna give us two challenges, two applications as we start uh, to move. And I'll readily admit, today has been really heavy on the side of explanation because um, over the next several weeks, those are actually the various applications of this passage. And so we're gonna see the application of all this, how it relates to the law and our lives today. That's what we're gonna keep seeing over the next several weeks. But there are still two applications that I wanna make sure we see from this passage before we wrap up our time together this morning. I'll give you both at the same time. The first is that we be made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we have become righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, our calling is to hold fast to everything God has spoken in his word. That's our response today. Jesus demands something that we don't have within ourselves, but he has also provided for us what he demands. He's come to be what we could never be. And when we're made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, our calling is to a work of preservation. It's to hold fast to everything that God has spoken in his word. Um, some of you may, may remember um, Dean and Sarah. Dean came down here uh, two years ago, February, 2020. He's the pastor of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And he, he wrote a great book, uh, The Unsaved Christian. And he came and shared the message of that book that day. And we gave a copy to everybody who came. And, and Dean's remained an encouragement to me. And, and yesterday he, he just shared that this incredible story through his Twitter feed. And I was like, man, can I just share that in my message tomorrow? And he said, yeah. And, and so uh, he, he'd shared in, in uh, his Twitter feed this, this really incredible story. He was going to visit a friend uh, who was on his deathbed, someone that he has known since childhood, but who was not a believer in Jesus Christ. And Dean had the opportunity to visit. He had asked on Twitter, he said, I'm about to go share the gospel with a man on his deathbed. Will you pray for me? And so I, and I'm sure many, many others started to pray. And, and then he followed it up just a couple of hours later. This is the story. As he's sharing the gospel with his friend, his friend asked him the million dollar question. Well, how can I know that I've been good enough? I mean, that's the question, right? How can I know that I've done enough good to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Dean just told his friend straight up. This is exactly what he said to him. He said, you've not done enough good and you'll never be good enough. You'll never be good enough, but you can be forgiven. Church, that's the message of the gospel. It will never be enough. All of your white knuckle, legalistic attention to detail, following, following every rule to the T. Listen, I get it. I'm a rule follower. I get it. Those of us that like a checklist to live by, yeah, you, you can try that in your own strength. It will never be good enough. 
never be good enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But Christ has done for you what you could never do for yourself. He is the perfect righteousness required to enter in to the kingdom. And once we rest in his perfect righteousness, our calling as his followers is to hold fast to everything that he's spoken in his word. And, and friends, let's make no mistake here. You and I have our work cut out for, the, for, for this today. Apart from just the regular challenges of being a follower of Jesus Christ, trying to faithfully live in obedience to his world, our, our world is still full of those who are external pietists. Man, they look the part on the outside. They, they, they usually come in the form right now, I've noticed as the internet police who, who are self-appointed to police everybody else's behavior and what every other church is doing and their own theology. Man, they, they've got the law down to the T. Types of people, yeah, they've never missed a tithe. They've never missed a Sunday, but they sure have missed justice and mercy. Jesus says they're not gonna enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not enough to look the part on the outside. You, you've got to be righteous on the inside. And that's something that Christ can only do for us. And then on the other side of the spectrum, from external pietists, we have a world that's full of theological liberals. They have increased the permissions of scripture. They have gone beyond the boundaries of scripture. They have lifted up the fences that, clear, that scripture has clearly established. And that's a challenge for us today. And listen, please do not miss this. Do not miss this. Do not miss this. They look and sound really, really loving and caring and welcoming. Maybe some of the most loving, caring, welcoming people you will ever meet. And in the name of love, they are going beyond the boundaries of what God's word permits. And no matter how loving they look, no matter how loving they sound, no matter what their motives and desires are, Jesus says they're not gonna enter the kingdom of heaven when we decrease the demands of scripture, making it purely external, when we increase the permissions of scripture, going beyond the boundaries of God's word, Jesus says, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you and I have an internal righteousness that manifests in external obedience, evidenced by our desire to faithfully follow every nuance that God has spoken in his word. Jesus says, this is the only righteousness that's good enough to enter the kingdom. So I'll close with this from James Montgomery Boyce. He said, Jesus Christ believed the scripture. He submitted himself to scripture and he taught that a person would only believe on him as he believed scripture. We are left with the question, how can we profess to be followers of Jesus Christ and not hold to the same view of scripture as he did? So I'll leave us where we started this morning. Why do we believe what we believe about the Bible? The answer is very, very simple. Church, we believe what we believe about the Bible because we believe what Jesus believed about the Bible. To love Jesus is to love his word and to love his word is to love him. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us your son, Jesus Christ, through this word. We thank you that even as we look in the mirror of scripture and we see where we fall short, you have shown us the one who didn't, who came as the perfect fulfillment of every nuance of your word. Help us today to rest in his perfect righteousness and help us to walk in obedience to your word, upholding it at every turn. Father, do not let us be drawn away by those who are content to look the part. Do not let us be drawn away by those who seek to increase your word's permissions in a way that you have not authorized. Help us to hold fast to your word. 
to preserve it, to be stewards of what it is you've entrusted to us, to walk in faithfulness and obedience to everything it commands. Father, we offer you our hearts this morning because it's all we have. We have no righteousness of our own, only what has been given to us through your son, Jesus. We rest in his finished work and his perfect righteousness today.